We continue this morning to march our way through the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible, please turn there with me. As I've encouraged you in the past to do, um, love having your Bibles in your laps and not just relying on the screen, though the screen is great, uh, just because I like you to be going back to the scriptures with me, uh, to be showing you why I'm saying what I'm saying and where I'm saying it from. And so, uh, by all means, please uh, open your Bibles with me. We uh, are turning towards the home stretch today in our study of this uh, first century letter written by the Apostle Paul. There is a, uh, there's a turning of the letter that you're going to see this morning uh, in our reading of this uh, particular section. And it's a turning that kind of results in these last chapters that we're going to be in for the next few weeks. You see, we can, we can think about, you can think about Galatians in, in terms of three parts, really, uh, the whole book. And though the, the chapter divisions were not, uh, they're not original, they're not inspired, I think you, you know that. In this way, they are helpful for framing our minds on what this book consists of. And so, Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Galatians were largely uh, biographical, remember? Paul felt this urgency to defend who he was, to defend his authority, that he might in turn to defend the message that he proclaimed. And so remember, he talked about how he was called by God. He talked about he was accepted by the other apostles and, and so forth. That message that he sought to um, give authority from his own life for is really unpacked in the next two chapters. So chapters three and four of this letter are really focused on our right standing with God. By faith in Christ alone are we saved by nothing else. No works, no law, no circumcision needed. And that brings us to the last two chapters, chapters five and six. And it's in these final two chapters that Paul turns really intensely and intentionally practical. And it's not that there hasn't been anything practical in the first four chapters. It's simply that in chapters five and six, he really goes after how the gospel applies to our lives. In light of the authority that he had to proclaim this message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, now how does that affect the way we think, our our mindscape? How does that affect our battle with our own flesh and its desires? How does that affect our, our character and our desire to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus? And so that's where we're, we're going. And we're just going to turn the corner today and, and kind of scratch the surface. It'll get a bit more intense in the weeks to come. But listen as I read and follow along this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Listen as I read 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure if what, what's exactly happened to the Presbyterian in me, but rather than dividing every text into three, I have uh, the last several weeks been on this two-point tear. And uh, the two-point tear continues today. Of course, it doesn't really matter what I bring out in terms of highlight, how many points there are, but I hope that these points, that these truths take root in your heart today. So two truths that I want to focus on as we work our way through this passage this morning. And the first one is this. Jesus is our jubilee. Jesus is our jubilee. Now some of you are saying, huh? Where is that in the text that you just read? I didn't hear that word once. Well, it's in the first statement right there that Paul says, Jesus has set us free. In other words, Jesus is our jubilee. Let me explain. And let me begin by just talking a moment about freedom. We as Americans love freedom. Freedom. We love the word freedom. It's part of our DNA. And when we think of freedom, we first, I think, think as Americans of what we enjoy as a result of our democracy, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so forth. As a citizen of this country all my life, as the son of a retired Air Force officer, believe me, I appreciate and give thanks for this kind of freedom, as I'm sure you do as well. But the freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us, 
The freedom that Paul here calls the church to stand firm in is a freedom that is so much deeper, that is so much wider, that is so much longer. And to show you that, I want to go all the way back in the Old Testament to Leviticus 25. You don't have to turn there. You can read it later. But it's in Leviticus 25 that Yahweh gives instructions for the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is a beautiful picture that I want you to hear, that I want you to understand. You see, in Jewish agricultural culture and society, according to Jewish law, every seventh year, there was to be no planting and no plowing. The land was to be given rest. And then, according to Jewish law, according to God's law, every seventh sevens, so after 49 years, on the 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, on the Day of Atonement, in that year, a a trumpet would sound. And the sound of that trumpet meant that for the entire year, no agricultural work would be done. All mortgages in the land would be forgiven and done away with. And all slaves would be set free and returned to their homes. Can you imagine to be alive in the 50th year, in the year of Jubilee? You see, this living societal picture was built into the fabric of Jewish life, it was a gift. It was a gift foreshadowing a time of fulfillment which the prophet Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 61.1. Listen, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so fast forward several hundred years, we find Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, and he walks into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he rolled up the scroll he gave it back to the attendant he sat down all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him and he said to them today in your hearing this scripture has been fulfilled and he takes a mic and he drops it well not that last part but figuratively speaking that is what I mean When I say Jesus is our jubilee, he has set us free. And that's what Paul is pressing home again and again to the Galatians. No need to go back to what was because every day, every year because of Christ is a day, is a year of rest and forgiveness and freedom. 
And so Paul says, and he pleads, stand firm in this. Don't submit again to to that yoke of slavery. Now let's unpack those Let's unpack those admonitions. Stand firm and don't submit. There's a phrase that we sometimes hear in our own cultural context of freedom of speech in our country in particular. Namely, that we, we need to be aware of enemies, foreign and domestic, right? We need to be aware of enemies, both foreign and domestic, We can kind of categorize Paul's two admonitions, stand firm and do not submit, in those two categories. Let me explain. Paul's first phrase, stand firm, acknowledges that there are outside pressures that press in on the gospel that need to be resisted, right? This is the the foreign enemy. For the Gentiles, they had their pagan rights. We've talked about this. Pagan rights which provided no assurance but gave you some sense that you were accomplishing something, right? That you were gaining some favor of the gods. For the Jews, there in Galatia, as one author described them, uh, their laws were this intimidating and overpowering ceremonies and, and rituals. It wasn't, that worse. it wasn't that there was no life or no encouragement in the Jewish rituals or in the ceremonial law of the Lord. But the teachers of the law had added weight and priority to the law that it wasn't intended to have. Those things were always meant to point to grace, but instead they had been made into this religious culture that was burdensome, that was toxic. Now, they didn't see it as enslavement, the Jews, but it clearly was. Listen to Paul's comments to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So now here in these churches in the first century, it has become all about circumcision. This seemingly minor surgery, right? Snip, snip. Sorry, parents, you're going to have to explain that later. But listen, this is a life lesson for us. Because it begins with the seemingly small things. The little compromises that seem like no big deal. Right? Paul says in verse 9, I think this is what he means. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, this little act of, of circumcision, this little threat from the outside, seemingly small, what's the big deal? Just have everyone do this. It's not a big deal. It represented, it's, it represented something much bigger. It was a theological symbol for relating to God. And Paul says if you accept that, you are in essence accepting a religion of law, not a religion of grace. 
a religion of human achievement, not a religion of divine accomplishment. A religion of, of I can do it, not it's been done for me. And this was such a big deal to Paul that he says in verse 12, a pretty shocking statement. One translation translates verse 12, why don't those agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? We think, why, Paul? A couple possibilities. Some pagan religions required their priests to be eunuchs. And so perhaps Paul is just indicting them as, a, as an alternative pagan religion. Secondly, maybe because according to Old Testament law, eunuchs were not allowed in the temple, Paul might be here saying vividly, in no uncertain terms, these guys don't belong in the church. Just get out of the church. Either way we understand it, I don't want you to have this characterization of Paul that he was just being a malicious jerk. No, this is how serious this seemingly little minor surgery was to Paul because it represented something huge and something fundamental to what the gospel was and what Jesus came to do. And he wasn't going to mess around. God's people had been faithful, running their race. Paul loves athletic imagery, right? And he talks about running the race, and yet something diverted them, got them off course. And he says, get back on course. Fix your eyes on the finish line. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is our jubilee. Well, that's the foreign enemy, but there's a domestic enemy as well, because In a sense, Paul speaks of the internal pressure in this second encouragement, right? Stand firm against all the external forces that come against the gospel. Even the the small things. But then secondly, don't submit. You see, he recognizes there, there is an internal pressure that we feel in our own hearts. There's such a thing called a slave mentality. Right? You've lived under something for so long that you begin to adopt the view of your master and think that that is who you are, that that is what you are. Remember the Israelites when Moses led them out of slavery from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness and when things got hard, what did they say? Oh, if we could go back. Back to those chains, back to those whips. Yeah, that's what we need. There's a story told about Harriet Tubman, the great historical figure of our country, the woman who rescued countless slaves on the Underground Railroad. She used to carry a revolver for her own personal safety when she uh, was um, doing her work. And at one time, it's told that she actually pulled the revolver on one of the slaves that she was leading to freedom. 
You see, the escape had become so difficult for him. The road to freedom was so hard that the slave was ready to turn back and she put the gun to his head and said, you go to freedom or you die. Now who knows whether Harriet would have pulled the trigger, but he went to freedom. See, he needed to fight that desire to flee back to what he knew. He needed to be reminded that he wasn't a slave, but he was a son. Deservedly free. We need the same reminder. This is who we are. I mean, what does that mean for us practically? It means we don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend that you got all your stuff together. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There ought to be no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus's. Shame on us for condemning others, for judging others in their sin, or because they don't have all their act together. We are accepted. We are loved. We are forgiven. We have access to the throne all because of Jesus, who is our Jubilee. Singer-songwriter Michael Card, who I grew up listening to. I learned a lot of Old Testament from Michael Card. If you've never heard him, Google him. Listen to the Ancient Faith album. But he has a song called Jubilee. And in the song, he ends the song with this line. In his voice, we hear a trumpet sound that tells us we are free. He is the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. That's what we hear in Jesus' voice. So stand firm. Don't go back. Wait, he says, verse 5. Wait for the hope of righteousness, that fullness that is coming to confirm that everything he said is true, that everything he said would be yours is yours. Jesus is our jubilee. That's the gospel. And that's essentially verse (laughs) 1. As we move into these next section, these next several verses, Paul reminds us of something. Something before he launches into the life of the Spirit. He reminds us that freedom can be dangerous. As wonderful as that message is that Jesus has set us free, that Jesus is our jubilee. Paul reminds us that freedom can be dangerous. With, with sinful hearts like ours, we can, we can run wild. No law? Great. I'll do, I'll do whatever. He'll forgive me, right? His mercy is wide enough. So who cares? Paul addresses this in lots of places in the New Testament, but he addresses it here too. He says, no, no. And that's the second portion or the second truth of our text. Not just that Jesus is our jubilee, but this, our freedom is for service, not self. Our freedom is for service, not self. 
getting back and bringing back to your minds this American concept of of freedom that we all love. It starts political for, for most of us, but then it quickly turns personal. Right? I remember as a kid at times seeking to justify my actions, saying, saying with this snarky attitude to my friends, or maybe even to my parents, sorry, mom, it's a free country. I'll do what I want. Right? And then we grow up as adults and, and we say the same thing. Well, don't tell me what to do. Right? American individualism at its worst. You do you, I'll do me, end of discussion. Paul reminds the church in verse 13 that our freedom is not to be used for the flesh, not to be used to indulge ourselves in whatever we want to indulge ourselves in. Liberty is not license. He'll write in Romans 6 that this kind of rebellion of just thinking we can do whatever we want and become all about our flesh, it will just create more enslavement. It puts you back into slavery. It's helpful for us to hear this. Romans 6, 16 through 18, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And here's where the Christian life is a paradox, right? We've been set free Jesus is our jubilee, but we've been set free to serve, to essentially become slaves of Christ. That's what we've been set free to do. Freedom is not the absence of all restraints. It's the restoration of how you and I were made to live, of what true humanity looks like what true humanity was all about. Because who was true humanity? Jesus. The one who walked in accordance with the will of the Father in all things. That was true freedom. Because of Jesus, our jubilee, we now have that privilege of walking as He walked. And so Peter says to the church in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And what are servants of God about? What is Christ about? He's about love. <laughs> He's about love. Love for God. Love for others. Paul draws our attention here to the fact that false teaching in the church doesn't foster love. It only fractures the church. Right? That's what's happening in these churches of Galatia. Disagreement creates division, which then so often leads to sinful judgment of one another, which Paul describes here as biting and devouring one another. 
Now, thankfully, we here in Edmonds, Washington in 2021, we know nothing about division or disagreement, right? We've never bitten or devoured a brother or sister, have we? Of course we have. But that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of love. Remember verse 9, a little leaven? A little leaven. Leaven's the whole loaf. Circumcision is not our issue. Hope not. It's not our issue. But we can add to the gospel in other ways, can't we? In other subtle ways. The gospel plus blank equals true Christianity. Fill in the blank. Let me help you. The gospel plus homeschool equals true Christians. The gospel plus public school equals true Christians. The gospel plus wearing your mask at all times equals true Christians. The gospel plus don't wear a mask equals true Christians. And Paul says you're biting and devouring one another. And this is how it begins. Through the little things. Freedom doesn't serve self, it serves others. And it does so because there's this all-encompassing humility that defines sinners. Sinners who have been set free by something outside of themselves, not because of anything inside of us. And peeking ahead in our letter, what is the portrait? What are the colors of the portrait of a spirit-led person? The colors are verse 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are outward facing, aren't they? All of these things have to do with our dealings with one another. They're, They're a portrait of service to others. Of course, they're all things that are found perfectly in Jesus and imperfectly in us. And that's why these so often are not the things we find on Facebook and Twitter. Instead, we find short fuses and harsh rhetoric and quick judgments and defense of self. And Paul says, let the gospel, let Jesus, who has set you free and united you in diversity, let the gospel disarm you. Not extinguish all passion or conviction. I've said that before. But certainly focus us on persons. Especially in the church, right? That's Paul's context of writing. Is the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And so Paul reminds us all to check our hearts, to check our spirits, to not consume one another. But with the grounding of the work of Jesus, our jubilee, make certain that it's the Spirit of God that is leading you, that is His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit 
that is growing from your branches, that is falling from your life. May God give us the grace to love and to live as those who are free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this encouragement from the Apostle Paul, this admonishment from the Holy Spirit. We confess that we as your church, that we as your people, we screw up plenty. Using our freedom to indulge ourselves, using our freedom to defend ourselves. Father, I pray that we might go from this place with a renewed love and appreciation and the resulting disarming of the fact that Jesus is our Jubilee. And that Jesus has set us free not to indulge the flesh, not to indulge the self, but to serve others selflessly. Father, show us the way. Give us wisdom by the power of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.